0: Are we blessed or what with our our music? We have this duet this evening from Jim on the organ who's been filling in for Maria. It's Fabulous. You notice in the organ prelude with the medley of old time hymns. How many of you recognize those? His eyes on the sparrow and uh, found the pearl of great price and because he lives, Right? kind of like the old-time religion, (laughs) Jim. That was very nice, and we're also glad to have the maestro back. Each summer he goes away, where he's uh, pursuing a graduate degree in music direction, and we're delighted to have Randall back with us. So, it's good to have you, Randall. We're going to continue tonight with our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and uh, as those of you who have been with us regularly know, We are still in the eighth chapter, and I'm sure that God is not willing that we complete that chapter this evening, but that we make progress into part of it at least. And so, I'd ask that uh, the congregation stand for the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to read this evening from Romans 8 beginning at verse 28 and reading through verse 30. This is a lengthy passage, so I pray that you'll have the strength to remain standing throughout. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called. According to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, whom He called, He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. This passage that I've just read is known in the history of theology as the golden chain of those actions wrought by God in His grace to bring about the redemption of His people. The infallible Word of God for our edification. Please be seated. Let us pray. Now, O God, in this evening hour as we explore briefly the depths and indeed unfathomable riches of the sweetness of Your providence by which You order all things that come to pass and work them together for the good of those who are Your people. We pray that our hearts may be lifted up and our souls thrilled to contemplate the mystery of Your divine providence, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We know from the teaching of Scripture that our ultimate destiny of Scripture or of, as Christians is to enter into heaven a place that we are told in the book of Revelation where there will be no night, no death, no tears. It will be a place where we will live forever without affliction, without pain, and an environment that in no way is marred at any time by the presence of evil or of sin. That is to say that heaven, dear friends, is a place where nothing ever goes wrong, where no evil ever takes place, where nothing bad will ever happen to us. And so we look with joyous anticipation as the Apostle did just before this text when he spoke about the fact that there is no comparison between the afflictions that we endure in this life and the glory that has been stored up for us in heaven to which we look forward. But now I ask you the question tonight what about now? What about here? We're not in heaven, we're still in this veil of tears. How would you feel if Jesus walked in that door and came? To the front of the church and asked me to please leave the pulpit, which I would be happy to do if he were here to speak directly to us. And he said, I have good news for you, that for the rest of your lives in this world, I promise you that nothing bad will ever happen to you again. How would you feel if our Lord gave that announcement and that assurance to you about the rest of your life in this world. Wouldn't that be great if He would say to us, don't worry, nothing bad will ever happen to you? Well, in a very real sense, beloved, He's already said that. He says it's sort of in a sideways kind of a way that we'll explore this evening. But that's basically the affirmation that we are getting here in Romans 28, 28 when the Apostle Paul says with assurance, and we know, he's not speaking I don't think in the editorial we or the magisterial we, but he's speaking inclusively of all of those who are in the faith that one thing that we know for sure, that we know that all things are working together for good for those who love the Lord and who are the called according to His purpose. I mentioned last week when we first spoke of this passage that there's so much contained in it that all we'll be able to do this week is to scratch the surface of it It's an astonishing affirmation that the Apostle gives us when he says with certainty that all things that we experience are working together for good, for those who love the Lord and who are the called according to His purpose. Now, I know that one of the most fundamental principles of biblical Christianity is this, that we are never, ever to call good evil, or to call evil good, because that is essentially the lie of Satan that has been spread abroad through every generation. The great seduction of the enemy is to convince us that sin that brings pleasure is really not so bad. In fact, it is actually a good, and if we are to experience the best that life has to offer us, then we must indulge ourselves in things that God prohibits because Satan lies. He calls evil good and good evil, and we are not supposed to do that. So, I have to be very careful how I handle this text tonight because I'm afraid I will come perilously close to indeed calling evil good and good evil. I had a mentor in my theological training whose views were cited to me last night at our banquet who was fond of making a distinction among four types of actions, and those four types are these. There are what he called those actions that are good-good, there are those kinds of actions that are bad-good, and there are those kinds of actions that are bad-bad, and then those kind of actions that are good-bad. Now, that should be enough to confuse you for the rest of the week. Let me just go over it again quickly. There's good, good, bad, good, bad, bad, and good, bad. Now, what was he getting at with these fine distinctions? Well, let's look at them seriatim. First of all, the good, good. The good, good is that kind of virtue that is done by Christ, by God, by God by the saints in heaven, where there is no alloy of evil mixed in it. In this world, whatever good that we are able to do as we are being sanctified never reaches the level of good good, because there is a pound of flesh in all of the virtue that we accomplish in this life, as St. Augustine well said. Our best works, because of the way in which they remain tainted by our human pride, and the way in which they fall short of the glory of God, are at best splendid vices." That, again, takes us to the second category, bad good. Good that is intended to be acts of virtue and obedience to God, but nevertheless may be accompanied by shortcomings and failures. This could also describe what Calvin defined as civic virtue, that righteousness that is achieved even by the unbeliever or the pagan who is unregenerated. That even the unbeliever can, through enlightened self-interest at times, stumble upon the good and do good, though not of a heavenly sort. The person who drives his car according to the speed limit and is obedient to the civil magistrate is doing a good thing. But when we consider goodness from the perspective that God considers it, God considers an act both in terms of its outward conformity to His law, but also in terms of the inward motive which is that motive that is uh, uh, inclined to be pleasing to God. Now, the pagan may have external righteousness. He may drive his car, according to the speed limit, at 55 miles an hour on I-4. But the reason why he drives his car at 55 miles an hour is not because he has a desire in his heart to please the Lord, but he's trying to escape a ticket or other uh, bad consequences to his economic situation. We find people who drive 55 miles an hour on the interstate, not because they're desirous of being model citizens of civil obedience, but because they like to drive their car at 55 miles an hour. You find same people drive their car at 55 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour speed zone, or even in a 25-mile-an-hour speed zone, it just happens from time to time that their outward behavior corresponds to the law, but not out of any virtuous intent. That's bad good. That's good that is not motivated from a pure heart. Then we look at bad, bad. Bad, bad is so bad that there is no admixture of virtue in it. It is pure transgressions. transgression outwardly, motivated by a hostile heart to God inwardly. This is the kind of action that is undertaken every moment by Satan and his fallen angels. I think it's easy to understand these three categories that I've just given, but the one we're concerned about now is this one that we call good-bad. Good-bad is true badness. That's why we don't want to say that good bad is really goodness. But we see that there are certain actions that when they take place are evil. They are bad. Nevertheless, under the providence of God, under His sovereignty over human events, God has the power to bring good out of evil, which is a glorious thing that we can experience as Christians, knowing that all of the bad that we are called upon to suffer in this world, which things are truly bad, considered in and of themselves. Nevertheless, under the sovereign power of God, These bad things are being used by God for our ultimate good. So viewed from a proximate perspective, they are indeed bad, and there is no redemptive virtue in it, but from the ultimate perspective, it is good that they are happening because God is using them for His ultimate purpose. Now, that's a critical point for us to understand if we are to understand anything of the providence of God. The fact that this can happen is based on what we call in theology and under the heading of providence, the doctrine of concurrence or of confluence, where in certain actions that are taking place, where human beings are involved, we're exercising our wills, we're doing what we want to do, in many cases that choices that we are making are diabolical, they're harmful, they are wicked, they bring destruction upon ourselves and upon others. Nevertheless, even in our sin. The providence of God is at work, and He has the power to trump our evil inclinations, our evil desires, and in spite of ourselves, bring good to pass. The best illustration of this that we have in the Bible is found at the end of the book of Genesis When Joseph, who had suffered so greatly at the hands of his treacherous and jealous brothers, who had wasted away for years in a prison, separated from his family, from his countrymen, in a foreign land, sold into slavery, falsely accused, thrown into prison, and then finally, through the providence of God, is rescued from that fate and elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh, becoming. The prime minister of Egypt, you know the story, how that famine comes into the land of Canaan, and Jacob sends emissaries from his sons down to Egypt to seek relief from the famine from the storehouses of Egypt. And in that process, they meet Joseph, and they don't recognize Joseph, and they speak Hebrew among themselves, but Joseph recognizes them. And it's one of the most poignant uh, narratives that we find in the entire Old Testament. Well, finally, the moment of truth comes where Joseph is revealed to his brothers, and they're terrified of his wrath, and they beg for his forgiveness. And you remember what Joseph said, don't worry, I'm not going to play God with you? And he said, You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What an incredible, incomprehensible biblical revelation that is. In such a way that God so orders his providence as not to cancel out secondary causes not to annihilate the actions of the human will which are undertaken freely. In that text we see that Jacob, or Joseph is aware that his brothers not only sinned against him and committed something that was really evil, but they sinned with intent, with malice aforethought. They had conspired together and schemed up this plot to get rid of their brother. Of whom they were so jealous. And so we have in this text the appearance of what we call intentionality, that as rational beings, the brothers of Joseph fully intended to bring harm against him, and so their sin was intentional. But Joseph said, while you had your intentions in this action, and you worked to exercise your will to bring evil to me, in that very action, God was involved. God was acting, and His intention was purely righteous. No mixture of evil in it, his sovereign providence in it was altogether good. We could see the same thing operating in the story of Job, where Job is at the mercy of Satan and of the Sabeans and the Chaldeans who exercise their intentional actions of harm against Job. All the while in their sin, they're fulfilling the plan of God Himself whose purposes in these things is never evil, but altogether good and glorious." People choke when I say to them that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, at least in some sense, as the great Saint Augustine said. In our confessional standards, the Westminster Confession says that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but is quick to amend that by saying that not in such a way as to eliminate secondary causes or to make of no significance the will of the creature and does no violence to the will of the creature. Nevertheless, God's sovereignty prevails in every instance. I'm sure you've heard this statement many times, maybe you've repeated it, In the past, but now, of course, you will repent of that and never say it again. That you hear this statement that God's sovereignty ends where human freedom begins. Have you heard that? That's blasphemy. A moment's thought will reveal it to be blasphemy. As if the sovereignty of God were in any way limited, conditioned, or dependent on your authority. No, your freedom is a gift of God. It's real. You exercise it, you enjoy it, but your freedom is everywhere limited by God's sovereignty. That's what we mean by sovereignty. God is the sovereign. We are not the sovereign. And even the fall of the human race was in some sense ordained of God. Listen carefully, please. Recently at the Southern Baptist Convention, a special, last month a special session was held with 5,000 ministers present, and a debate ensued between one of the top officials of the Southern Baptist Confession or Convention and the president of uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Dr. Al Mohler, on the doctrines of grace and specifically with respect to the doctrine of election. And in the course of the debate, sin was placed at my doorstep where the head of the Baptist side said, R.C. Sproul teaches that God needed to have the fall in order to bring about His plan of election. Well, that heated up the email society, and the internet went nuts with that, and I was getting inquiries from many circles, not the least of which from Al Mohler and some of my other friends who were present on that occasion. They said, R.C., did you ever say anywhere that God needs the fall to bring about His plan of salvation? I said, you know, I don't remember everything I've ever said or ever wrote. But I'll have to tell you, I would cut my tongue out before I would make a statement like that. And where this gentleman ever got that quote, I challenge you to ask him to document it, cite it, because he's going to have a hard time, because I've never said such a thing. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need the fall. He can bring to pass His sacred will however He desires, not because He needs it. Now, somebody could have heard me state uh, an exposition of Karl Barth where in his qualified superlapsarianism, Barth speaks as if God needed the fall to bring about His plan of redemption. And I may have been expounding Barth on some occasion and said, Barth teaches the, that God needs the fall, and somebody turned on the radio and heard me say, God needs the fall, just heard the second half of the sentence. But, uh, but please, don't go out of here thinking that I'm teaching you that God needed to have the fall. But I did say He ordained it in some sense. Why? How do I know that? Well, because it happened, and because God is sovereign, and because God is omniscient, and He knew before the fall, that Adam and Eve were going to fall, and he had the power and the authority to intervene to crush the head of the serpent before the serpent ever opened his diabolical mouth, and he could have prevented the fall from occurring. But he didn't. That's not the same thing as saying he forced Adam and Eve to sin. He let them sin, when He could have stopped them from sinning. And if He could have stopped them from sinning, and did not stop them from sinning, then that means clearly that He chose not to stop them from sinning. And if He chose not to stop them from sinning, then manifestly, in some sense, He ordained, that they not be stopped. And if He ordained that they not be stopped negatively, then that means positively, He ordained that they would in fact sin. Is that clear? That's simple, isn't it? Really, that's not rocket science. But if the Lord God omnipotent even permits the fall for His own purpose, He must have a good reason for it. And even though evil is in the world and evil is evil, it's good that it is here or it couldn't possibly be here. Because whatever God ordains that should come to pass, according to His inscrutable purpose and eternal purpose, must be ultimately for good. Now, I said I'd come perilously close to saying evil is good, and I'm I'm close, but no cigar. Evil is still evil. I'm saying that evil is evil, but that is here is within the broader eternal purpose of God for some good purpose which we know ultimately is His glory. What if the Creator would permit the creature to be engaged in evil only to manifest in the final judgment God's perfect justice in punishing wickedness? I don't know that is the reason but I know that whatever God does, He does well. And here is the affirmation in Romans 8, 28, that everything, all things, not all things are good, it's not not an illusionist saying there is no such thing as evil, that's not what Paul is saying, but all things are working together for good that is the ultimate purpose, is a good purpose. And in the meantime, even though evil befalls us and afflicts us, that evil that is afflicting us now is working for our good. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word gay, from which we get the word synergy. Uh, A work of synergy or synergism is a cooperative venture. When two or more parties work together on a task, we say that there is synergy involved in the activity, a working together of two or more parties. And that's the word that Paul uses to describe the way in which God's providence works together with our afflictions for good." Now, notice the restriction. Notice the limitation that the apostle places here, that this divine synergy by which all of the bad things that happen to us or through us or by us are working together ultimately for good, is not a statement that Paul makes for the benefit of everybody. It's not that everybody is living in a world where their afflictions are working together ultimately for their good. Rather, the restriction is plain. All things are working together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. So first of all, this drama of concurrence, of synergy whereby God is making all things work together for good is simply for those who love Him. And obviously that is not everybody because the vast majority of mankind, live and die at enmity with God, and are not numbered among those to whom all things are working together for good. But if you are a Christian, and the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts, then you have nothing to fear. Remember that this statement, 828, is in chapter 8, and we're still dealing with the question, is it safe? Are we in a situation and an environment in our lives as Christians where there is now no condemnation that we have to fear, that we have nothing to fear from eternity, we have nothing to fear from the afflictions that we have to endure in this present life because all of these things are every moment working together under the sovereignty of God for good if we love Him. It is working for the believer for those who love God, and who are those who love God? Paul does not leave us to grope in the dark about their identity. For those who are the called according to His purpose. You know, we have debates all the time about election, predestination, that sort of thing. It's endless, the discussions will go on until the second coming. I'm sure that every generation of Christians has to fight this battle as if the doctrine of election were some esoteric doctrine that only elite intellectuals and professional theologians can grasp as if it weren't on every page in the Bible. But it is. But if it weren't, and that the only verse in Scripture we had was the one I just read That would be enough to establish the doctrine of election forever, because the assurance is given to those who love God, and those who love God are identified as the ones who are the called according to His purpose. Now, how do people deal with this text? They will say, well, the Bible when it speaks of those who are called means those people who have heard with their ears outwardly the preaching of the gospel, and some of those who hear the gospel respond positively, and some reject it. And those, obviously, who say yes to the call of the gospel are those who are the ones who love God, and those who reject the calling of the gospel are those who do not love God in the final analysis. It's a nice theory. It's not what the apostle is saying here. It's not at all what he's teaching here because he's defining those who love God as the ones who are the called according to God's purpose. Now, here's something that may be surprising to you. In almost every occasion in which the Bible, the Word of God, speaks of the call of God, it is speaking of what we call the effectual call of God. Last night if you were at the banquet and we had the Q&A session afterwards, the very first question that was raised was about effectual calling. And that is a term that describes the power of God's call whereby what He calls forth to occur, occurs, that what He purposes to effect by that call is affected. It starts with creation. When God calls the world into existence, ex nihilo, calls the light to shine, into the darkness, it is not an invitation. God does not plead with the darkness to produce some light. He does not woo or entice the universe to come into being, saying, please, O world, come into being. When God in His omnipotent power says, let there be light, and makes that call, that call is always and everywhere effectual. What God purposes in whatever call He gives, that purpose is never and can never be frustrated. Why, dear friends? Because God is God. He really is God. He's not a president elected by majority vote. He rules sovereignly from all eternity because He is the Lord God omnipotent who reigns nothing, no darkness, no void, no emptiness, no threat of chaos, no sinful disposition can ultimately resist the power of His call, because His grace in this call is irresistible, not in the sense that we don't have the capacity to resist. My goodness, our whole lives demonstrate that we can resist grace. We do resist grace, but when we talk about irresistible grace, we're not talking about an attractive young lady named Grace named Grace that nobody can… Uh, fail to be charmed by. But irresistible grace means even though we resist with all of our might, God's grace trumps our resistance and brings to pass what His eternal plan has been, what His divine purpose is to bring it to pass. When God and Christ called Paul to be an apostle, It was no mere outward summons. When Paul identifies himself, his mission, his life, Paul called to be an apostle, not by men but by the will of God. He's referring to that divine vocation, that divine purpose, which is affected by the call itself. So when we're talking about the called or the elect, those who are the called out ones from the world are those who are not merely been summoned outwardly, but those whom the Spirit calls inwardly by coming into their hearts, changing the disposition of their hearts, and affecting the transformation of their souls. The resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life that is the power of the Holy Spirit working among us. If you are a believer today, it's not because you made God's call effectual on your life, it's because God made His call effectually on your life because you were the called according to His purpose. What is a purpose? It's a desired end, a planned consequence. And when we set forth our goals and articulate our purposes and set down in writing the ends that we would like to accomplish in this life, such goal setting in all due diligence is nevertheless at best fallible, and we know the best laid plans of mice and men can go astray and fail to end in the designed purpose. But fortunately, the poet in talking about the best laid plans of mice and men did not include God in that category because the best laid plans of God never come to not. There is a doctrine of God that is pervasive in the Christian world today that strips Him of His sovereignty, that in effect strips Him of His very deity by which this poor, impoverished deity wrings His hand in heaven, hoping and praying at times against hope that somebody will take seriously the sacrifice that His Son made and bring His plan of salvation to fruition. That's not God, not worthy to be given the title God. God is the Lord God, the God who says to Moses, let my people go. I mean, not the Moses, says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and if you don't, I'm going to destroy your very land in which you live, that the world may know that I am the Lord." Okay, go, go, please, get out of here. Just no more plagues, Lord. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that on the judgment day, Pharaoh will say, well, God was a hyper-Calvinist. He hardened my heart what could I possibly do? How can He judge me harshly for doing what He purposed that I should do? No, sometimes the writer says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes the hardening is attributed to God. Paul will explore that further, as I said, in Romans 9. But keep in mind that even Pharaoh, the most powerful man, In the universe at that time was clay in the hands of our Creator and our Redeemer, who had a purpose for His people and through His people to the whole world a purpose of Exodus, a purpose of liberation, a purpose of redemption, and a purpose of salvation which was not, beloved, an afterthought. It's not as if God never considered the exodus until He heard the cries of the people of Israel groaning about the burdens imposed upon them by Pharaoh who wouldn't give them straw for their bricks. And so God notices this calamitous situation and said, I better do something about this. No, no. as early as Joseph, whom the future Pharaoh didn't know, God spoke to the children of Israel through their brother Joseph, saying, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, that many will come out through His salvation, that God planned the bondage of Israel. He planned the exodus from Israel just as much as he planned the betrayal of Joseph and his imprisonment and his demonstration that all of the afflictions and suffering that Joseph endured was working together not only for Joseph's good but for Israel's good the good of all of the saints of all of the ages. That's why it's not by accident that immediately following this dramatic affirmation that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, Paul launches into the golden chain whereby he says, for whom he foreknew he also preached predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, whom He predestined, these He called, whom He called, these He also justified, whom He justified, He also glorified. That golden chain comes immediately in the wake of Romans 8.28. One last point before I finish, that what we can get from Romans 8.28 is this, that in the meantime, in between time, each one of us is visited in our lives at some point with what may be called or defined as tragedy. We are actors in the theater of the tragic. Tragedies are on our minds every day. They're in our bulletin every week as we pray for those in our congregation who are experiencing the tragic in their lives. But what Romans 8.28 teaches, dear friends, is that ultimately, ultimately, not proximately, but ultimately, there are no tragedies for the Christian. Tragic now is blessing later every tragedy we experience in this world, God is working with it, molding it, shaping it for our eternal blessedness. So, the tragic is ephemeral. The tragic is temporary. The tragic is simply in this world but never, ever permanent. The other side of the coin is this, For the unbeliever who persists in his unbelief, every blessing that he receives from the hands of God in this life and in this world, dear friends, is ultimately working together for his damnation so that every blessing that the impenitent person receives from the hands of God ungratefully adds more sin to that depository of sin that Paul mentioned earlier where we heap up treasures of wrath against the day of wrath. Every blessing that goes unthanked, unacknowledged, unappreciated by the pagan will end up as a tragedy for that person. We live in a topsy-turvy world where the tragedy for the Christian is a blessing for eternity. The blessing for the pagan is a tragedy for eternity. Again, all things God works together for good for those who love Him, for those who are the called, not just outwardly called, but those who are the called according to his divine, his supernatural, and his omnipotent purpose. Let's pray. surely, O oh God, it is safe for those who love you, and that though we suffer evil for a season. That evil is nothing compared to the good that You are working for our benefit through us. Help us, O God, to look at today always from the perspective of eternity and in light of Your promises that cannot be broken. Amen.